Well, good morning to the few of you here and most of you at home. It's good to be here this morning. Pastor Keith, as many of you heard uh, last week, got diagnosed with COVID. I've talked to him throughout the week. He's doing well, mild symptoms. He's looking forward to getting back soon. But that has put me um, in the pulpit actually for uh, the next two weeks. So I'll be uh, here, obviously, here this morning, and then we're going to come back and tackle again. I'll explain that in just a minute. I did set up a version Bible event. So if you're at home, if you're here, you have the app and you search, uh, go to more and events and it should be under Chapel of the Lake. You'll see there that we have notes and you can follow along with the Bible. I have some extra things along the way there. I'll do my best to kind of reinforce the outline as we go through for all of you because didn't get the PowerPoint there. So the text this morning, we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and so we're going to do 1 through 13 today, and then probably the rest of the chapter next week. And so when I found out I was going to be preaching last weekend, I started to think, well, what am I going to preach on? We have two weeks before we have our 50th anniversary kind of celebration happening on the 26th, so we'll be enjoying hopefully our, our new parking lot on that day. And then we're going to start a new series in October. So we've got these two weeks that fit in here. And I ended up going with Second Timothy chapter 2 for a couple of reasons. Number one, many of you know I'm back in seminary. I had an assignment in Second Timothy this week. Um, and actually I'm working through Second Timothy uh, over the next six weeks. And so I was like, well, we're going to try to uh, gain some research there. And so that was one of the reasons. The other reason, the probably more appropriate reason that I chose Second uh, Timothy chapter 2 in particular, I don't know about you, but I, lately I felt just a little bit of a weight about our society, about our culture, about the hope of the gospel. I look around and we've had so many things over the past couple of years, we've COVID, obviously, the stuff that's been happening in the Middle East. We just remember 9-11 yesterday coming off of all the things happening in Afghanistan. Uh, that's just the big name items, not to mention the persecuted church around the globe, not to mention my social media feeds are just full of bickering, bickering even between believers. And it's, it's just depressing. And I'm part of some other groups of pastors and youth pastors and other Christians over here. And there's just been this, like, I, I don't know, it almost makes me sick to get on. Just the condition of even the church and the gospel. And and if we're not careful, we're tempted to sit in that feeling too long, to go into despair, uh, to begin to uh, moan and and complain. And I think that the message of Second Timothy should speak hope to us, but it might be not be in the way that we expect. Paul writes Second Timothy. This is his last letter. He's back in prison. He was under house arrest in Rome at at one time, and he likely got released. But now he's back in, and he had a limited amount of freedom before. But now he's in a dungeon. He's literally in a dungeon. We find out later in the in the letter, and he's alone. He's fearful that he's not going to make it out, and we don't really have any evidence to believe that he did. And this is literally just about the last thing that he writes to Timothy. And if you go back and look at the end of chapter one, it's even worse than just Paul's personal predicament of being in a dungeon, being in chains. Uh, he's been through a preliminary trial. He thinks he's 
marching towards his death, which he likely was. And you read the end of chapter uh, 1, and it says, um, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. So the, the Christians and the believers that he was working with and ministering to in and around Rome, they've all left him. They deserted him. And so he's sitting alone. He's given his whole life for the gospel. He's in chains. The people who he, I'm sure, at one time considered friends and partners in ministry, they're all gone. They're now ashamed of Paul and the gospel. They're nowhere to be found. And so he pulls out his pen to write to Timothy. And one of the things that he asked Timothy to do is to come see him because he needs some encouragement. Timothy, I want you to gather a couple of things he says at the end of the end of the letter. I want you to come see me. I need some joy. And you get this idea that Paul had this kind of weight about him. However, the encouragement comes in how Paul gives Timothy encouragement through it all, despite the circumstances, despite the bleak outlook, despite the fact that he's in jail, despite the fact that the believers have abandoned him, he's going to give Timothy some reasons uh, for hope. And so um, as we as we get into it this morning, let's just have a brief word of prayer. So I pray that you would encourage us through your word this morning. Some of this is not actually easy to hear in some ways, but I pray that it would truly be the encouragement that I believe it was for Timothy, that you would teach us and guide us through your word this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. So I entitled the message, The Advancement of the Gospel, because this is what Paul has devoted his life to. He was the ultimate missionary. After once being a persecutor of church, he has devoted his whole entire life to the advancement of the gospel. And now it would seem, especially from an outsider's perspective, that the gospel is about to die. That the church is going to be eradicated. This book was probably written, this letter was probably written 63, 64 A.D. Do you know what happens in 64 A.D.? Rome burns. And immediately after that, Nero blames the Christian. And more persecution is about to explode onto the Christians, especially in and among Rome. And so it's a bleak outlook from the outside perspective. And, and the question is, well, how then will the gospel move forward? More persecution is coming. More people will leave and be abandoned. How will the gospel advance? If Christians are abandoning him, Paul's own voice and pen are about to be silenced because he will be martyred. And so chapter 2 of 2 Timothy gives us just three keys that will fuel Timothy's ministry and will prove to continue to advance the gospel for generations to come. I know that's true because we're here in 2021 still speaking the same gospel that Paul gave Timothy. So here's the first key to advancing the gospel. To stand strong in God's grace. To stand strong in God's grace. If you look at the first two verses with me, Paul says to Timothy, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Where does Paul go first? 
to encourage Timothy. He goes to God's grace. What will Timothy need most as he looks to continue leading the church in Paul's absence? The grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, what does it look like? This is a churchy word. Oh, just you just need some grace. So um, just stand in God's grace. What does that mean? What's the practical side of that? Because I think if we're not careful, we just think it's passive where we just sit and receive God's grace. Well, God, I need your grace today. I'm going to sit here and wait for you to make me feel better about the world and my life and everything. God, I just need some extra grace today. I don't think that encapsulates all that is God's grace. And it certainly wouldn't be uh, almost an imperative command, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. How is this going to actually help Timothy advance the gospel? Think of three ways that um, grace, uh, that we need to think through grace. So grace must be first because grace is the basis of our salvation. I think this is where I think of most often when I hear the words grace. I think go to Ephesians 2. I think, yes, grace is the basis of my salvation. And so in order to stand in God's grace, I have to keep the gospel central to who I am. We remember that God has freely given us eternal life apart from anything that we've done or even deserve. Actually, in spite of those things. This is what grace means. Timothy has been called to retain this message of grace that was brought to him by Paul. He's also supposed to take that message of grace that he's heard and received from Paul and then find some other like-minded men who would be faithful to continue this message on. We'll talk more about that next week, I think. So not only is grace the basis of our salvation, it's also the constant source of our strength. Paul's encouraging Timothy to stand strong, to stand strong in God's grace. Paul encourages Timothy. He knows that people are leaving the faith. He knows that he's not going to be alive much longer. He probably also understands because Timothy, he just said, my child, a person that he has done ministry with for years. He knows that Timothy might just feel inadequate. He might be intimidated. And so Paul says where you need to go, Timothy, first to God's grace. This is where you get strength as a believer. Not your talents, not your abilities, not your knowledge, not your insight, not your courage or Timothy's lack thereof, but to rely constantly on God's grace that comes through our relationship with him. And so as we're strengthened in God's grace, we're then led into faithful obedience. Obedience is actually a product of God's grace and work in our lives. Titus 2, 11 and 12 kind of spells this out for us. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. And so here is where we get this idea of just standing in God's grace is not passive. It's actually an active response to all that God has done for us. And so by as we receive God's grace, we are then transformed inwardly that produces us, that trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That doesn't happen in our own strength. It starts with God's grace. 
And this is one of the keys to the Christian faith, that the more we actually would recognize our own weaknesses, the more we're, we're compelled to rely on God's sufficiency and power. And so that's what Paul meant when he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. This is the gospel that Timothy received from Paul. This is the gospel that will continue to advance down through the generation. This is the gospel that we preach here. We are saved by grace. We are sustained by grace. And His grace is sufficient despite and even uh, more so in light of our weaknesses. We want the gospel to advance. We need to rely to stand strong on God's grace. Then Paul continues on and Paul continues on. And our our second key for Timothy and us by way of implication is to stay resolute in God's mission. To stay resolute in God's mission. Let me read you the next few verses. It's verses three through seven. I'll read. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So he's saying, stay resolute in God's mission. Now, many people take this passage and they focus on how to endure in suffering. And that's entirely appropriate considering it starts with share in suffering. Paul knows that as he suffered, that part of being a Christian and especially in Timothy's case, a Christian leader, part of that's going to entail suffering. But this suffering is just a piece It's something that will inevitably come as he teaches and preaches the gospel. And while suffering and endurance is a big theme throughout the letter, I don't think suffering is the central theme of these verses. I think it's just simply one expected outcome in the life of the believer. I think the main central uh, theme in these sets of verses is about our mindset. I chose to say, stay resolute in God's mission. Stay determined in God's mission. So what Paul does in verses uh, 3, 4, 5, and 6, he gives us three analogies. Three analogies to help Timothy and us think through not just how he will respond to suffering, but the mindset that he will need to have in order to effectively advance the gospel. So we're going to just walk through them briefly one at a time. So the first analogy is one of a good soldier. Verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. You know, soldiers on active duty, they expect hardship. That's just something that comes with a job. But the job isn't to suffer. No, they know, they have an expectation that suffering will come, but the reason for their service 
is not to suffer. And it's the same for you and me. We should expect suffering as a Christian. But the goal of the Christian life is not to suffer. But we need to have the mindset of a good soldier, one who's expecting harsh conditions, mental and physical trials, trials, danger, the potential of physical harm or death. This is how a soldier prepares for battle. As Christians, Paul wants us to consider, well, what does it look like to be a good soldier? Because we are on the front lines of battle. And so we ought to be ready to withstand the attacks of the battle and suffer for the sake of Christ. But that's not all that encompasses the life of a soldier. So he continues on talking about the soldier in verse 4. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. You see, the desire, the mindset of a good soldier is to have a singular focus. And that singular focus is to please his commander. But what happens so often in Christians' lives is that they get entangled. This word uh, describes like um, sheep's wool getting stuck in thorns. That's the word picture. Um, and so it, it just gives us this idea of what it looks like if Christians start to wander off from their commitment to Christ. We're like a sheep who was supposed to be over here, wandered over here. And now all of a sudden they're caught in all these thorns. And, and that's what uh, Paul is saying. And well, a good soldier doesn't get entangled in civilian pursuits. He has a singular focus to please his commander. Here's how one commentator described this passage. In Paul's day, Roman soldiers were not part-time warriors. They were not busy buying real estate or making business plans as they passed through conquered territory. From sunup until they rested at night, every activity involved honing the skills of warfare, ensuring the security of their unit, gathering the supplies to keep them ready and fit. Nothing was ignored or left to chance. Life and victory depended on the soldier's readiness and commitment to the task. You see, the danger in making this passage solely about suffering is that we might miss this aspect of a resolute mindset. And if I think that we have a tendency to only think of the analogy of a soldier when we're faced with a hard time or a trial or difficulty. Oh, I got to go grab my armor because, oh, this is getting tough. And so let me go to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and figure out how to deal with this. But that's not at all what Paul is describing. Not just a soldier for when you're in trials or being persecuted, but that all the time we have a singular mindset not to go and suffer, but to please our commander. In our context, it should be a single-minded devotion that will keep us focused on God's mission, on God's call for your life. That's going to look different for you and me. But what Paul is calling Timothy to is that we should have the mind of a good soldier, that we would be wholeheartedly devoted to God's mission. To be sure, we live in a very different context and culture than Paul and Timothy. There are many things that can distract us from what God would have us to do. The good news is we don't have to worry about persecution from Nero. We have the freedom to gather here every Sunday for worship. There is no threat of martyrdom for American Christians at Chapel of Lake and Lake St. Louis. We're not worried about imprisonment. 
We're not worried that all of our friends and family and church is going to abandon us. That's, that's not on the table for anyone that I know. In our world, it looks very different. But we're still in danger. There are those who are truly suffering among us. And there are those who are truly facing trials. And, and they feel this endurance and, and need to persevere very acutely. And, and they are learning lessons about endurance that I haven't learned. And, and I trust that God is at work in their lives. And we need to be sensitive and, and find ways to help and support our brothers and sisters in those things. But I think for most of us, the danger is not in actually any suffering or any trials or many hardships at all. It's actually the very opposite. It's comfort. It's ease. It's opportunity, it's wealth, it's vacation, it's sports, it's all the things that we could do all the time on Sunday mornings, Tuesday nights, Thursday nights. Well, we can't go to a home group. We don't really have time to open the Word. Well, I could go to church, but man, it's a good day to be outside. Got some yard work to do. Haven't been golfing in a while. That sounds nice this weekend. That's a battle. That's a battle that Paul's saying, be a good soldier, have a singular mindset, don't let anything take you off God's mission, God's call for your life. Are you letting the good things, the comfort and the ease cause you to get entangled in the affairs of the world? Now, this isn't saying that you can't have a boat, that you can't go to a lake, that you can't play golf, that you can't have nice things even. But it's saying don't let those things become an entanglement that derails you from God's mission and call. I made the mistake this week of, just yesterday, of watching a sermon by Kevin DeYoung on this text, which I try always never to do before I preach, because then I'm just like, we should just play that. He was great. Okay, so I'm not going to tell you his whole sermon. You can look it up later. It's great. Uh, but there's one piece of this that's just, he just does such a good job, I have to retell it, basically. And, and, and he's preaching at a, at a conference to pastors and leaders, and he's talking about this, this mindset of a, of a soldier. And then he addresses, and he's like, hey, listen, I was on a church website, and this is what they said you should expect when you walk in the doors. A casual atmosphere, friendly people who will help you find your way around, contemporary and energetic music, messages relevant to your daily life, an amazing children's and youth ministry, a coffee bar with coffee from their, you know, custom coffee shop, and that you matter to God and to such and such church. That's actually not what DeYoung said. I just started typing, typing in Google, like some of those things, pages and pages of churches that have almost that exact language. They, everyone thought it was a good idea. And his point wasn't to, like, denigrate these churches at all, but it was to say and talk and speak to our culture, like, this says, I will be comfortable. This says you will find a place that's just for you and you can live a life of ease and just if it will work out and you enjoy it, why don't you come back? And then he compared it to the Navy SEALs code, which says loyalty to country, team and teammate serve with honor and integrity on and off the battlefield, ready to lead, ready to follow, never quit. Take responsibility for your actions and the actions of your teammates. 
Excel as warriors through discipline and innovation. Train for war. Fight to win. Defeat our nation's enemies. Earn your trident every day. And his remark was, besides that last one of earning your trident every day, that that description probably is closer to biblical Christianity than a life of ease and comfort and coffee, as much as I wish we had our own private coffee bar here at the chapel. And that's not to say that there aren't important or even valuable parts of civilian life, but it does mean that we don't want the affairs of the world to cloud our mission, which is God's mission. We are to serve the Lord as a soldier Serve the Lord with a resolute determination of a soldier willing to serve, knowing that, yes, it will include suffering and sacrifice. You've got to keep going. He, he moves from the idea of a soldier to an athlete. And he says in verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Well, what does this have to do with Christianity? There's actually a debate about this verse. There's two kind of main things out there, and I think they're both good, so we'll just give them both. There's first idea about training and discipline, that, hey, an athlete, if you want to win a prize, you're going to have to discipline your body. And actually, at the time, in ancient Greek, the public games, there was actually like requirements on training that you had to do to even qualify to be in the race. If you want to be in the Olympics, you had to train mandatory 10 months for sure. And then the second part, uh, so you have endurance and training on one hand, and then you have this second idea about following the rules, being lawful competition, that, that each game, each contest has rules, and the rules must be followed. And if someone doesn't follow the rules, then they're going to be disqualified. We've heard it and seen it in the news. Some big player with some big contract making all kinds of money has been training his whole life playing the game. All of a sudden gets busted because he was using steroids or drugs or other. Some failure, then boom, it's all gone. He's disqualified. His reputation's gone. There's a warning here for the Christian. It's encouragement and I think a warning all in, in one thing. If we're going to be focused on a right understanding of the gospel, we're going to need to be disciplined and we need to go and follow God's rules because only those who abide by the rules which are laid out in God's word will receive the prize. This is exactly what Paul says again in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's verses 24 and 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. There's a crown. There's a crown that's promised to all those who are in Christ, but only those who abide in Christ Follow the rules, as it were, of God's word will receive it. There are some who will find themselves disqualified. He says if the gospel is going to advance, we need to stick to the word of God. And it's okay to say that it's going to take hard work and discipline. That's supposed to be part of the Christian life. And that's where he goes next with a hardworking farmer. 
to verse 6. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. When I was in seminary in Indiana, not this time, last time. When I was in seminary in Indiana, before I came here, um, I loved it. I I lived in the literally a middle of a cornfield. I worked at this you know small little country church, and probably eighty percent of the people were farmers. It's a farming community. I had corn around me over here, soybeans over here. My uh, landlord had some cattle, and he had a whole bunch of stinky pigs. And his son-in-law lived across the river, and he had pigs, and they all farmed together. And I learned a lot about farming while I lived there because I knew nothing before I got there. And so I got to learn all kinds of things. And um, and hardworking would have certainly been the description that would have come to my mind. And you know exactly what no one would ever say about a, a farmer in that community? That they were lazy. It wouldn't happen because you can't make it if you're lazy. And, you know, I thought farming was like, well, you plant some stuff. You wait for it to grow, and then you go pick it. That's farming. (laughs) That's not farming. That's like two little pieces of farming. These farmers work all the time. There's planting, and yes, there's harvesting, and in between there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on. They're they're fertilizing, they're watering, they're well. They have their own shops because they're always maintaining their equipment. Like all kinds of things going on, and, and and this is the picture that Paul is painting. Not maybe with big tractors in this case, but he's saying no. You need to be a hard worker. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. And what he's getting at is. In the life of the believer, Galatians 6, 9, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. He's saying there's benefit in working for the cause and advancement of the gospel because we get to share in the harvest and the blessings. There's a return on the work. And as a Christians, we are to engage in hard work. And I wonder if someone was going to look at your life, follow you around for a week or two, a couple days, Will they ever say, man, that person works hard for Jesus? And I'm not talking about vocational ministry. I'm not talking about pastors and missionaries, although it applies to them equally as much. Are you working hard to follow God's call on your life? Are you spending time in God's Word? Are you engaging with other people? You know, sometimes it's hard to love people. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's okay to admit it. It is, but we're called to do it. We're called to do it, both the Christian and the unchristian, so that the gospel can advance. So that when people come in here, they're like, what's wrong with these people? They all like each other and love each other. It doesn't make any sense at all. Exactly. That's the grace of God at work in a church who understands that we are here for a purpose. And we're all working together to advance the gospel ultimately. But it might take some work. We need Sunday school teachers. We need people that are willing to engage in the work of study. We need elders and deacons who know the Word, who study the Word, who are willing to teach the Word so that the Gospel can advance not just to our community right now in this place, but to the next generation, which is the big picture view of 2 Timothy. We're passing on the Gospel to the generations to come. What sacrifices have you made in an effort to follow God's call on your life. I think the picture here of a soldier, an athlete, a farmer, a hard worker, require not only suffering and endurance, 
but sacrifice and determination. We have a resolute mindset. This is our aim to follow God's call in our life. I think Paul acknowledges that this is going to get Timothy's brain moving a little bit and thinking through all the things that he's heard. And so in verse 7 he says, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. I can't tell you how this should all exactly apply to your life. So go stand in the grace of God. Rest on these things. Let him work in your heart and ask him to show you and direct you where he would have you go, what he would have you do. How can you pursue God's call in your life? I've got to keep going because there's a big chunk left, but we're more than halfway done, I promise. Remember Jesus Christ, verse 8. So what he's doing here, so he moves from an analogy of the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer, and now he's going to say, so how does all of this, how does God's grace empower this kind of life? Because this sounds kind of hard. Why would I want to do that? So he reminds Timothy of the things to remember that will serve as an encouragement and motivation for this kind of gospel living. Even in the midst of disappointment, abandonment, suffering, trials, persecution that's likely coming. We'll do these quickly. Verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. You want to live a life that's focused on advancing the gospel? Remember it. We remember Christ and His gospel. This is how we opened the chapter in verse 2. We're wholly reliant on God's grace. But this gospel is not something that's just mythical and out there. This gospel came as a person. It came as a human, Jesus Christ, who actually lived, died, was buried, and then rose again. This is why we can say that Christ is our source of strength, because we remember that Christ has already conquered death. Through His resurrection, we are promised life. So Jesus becomes our example. Jesus becomes our example, especially in times of difficulty or suffering. We know that He physically endured the cross. He mentally had a wrestle with this idea of God's wrath coming down on him for sin. He endured the cross. He knew the cost. He experienced pain and the death that we deserved. And so we remember Christ and his gospel, which encourages us, which challenges us to be willing to suffer and endure then for the sake of Christ. And we remember his resurrection as it provides us with the hope and courage, because we know that we're promised to share in that resurrection if we endure. And then he says, verse 9, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Remember Christ and his gospel. We remember Paul and his suffering. Paul is suffering a pretty demeaning time in jail. He's a Roman citizen. This should never have happened. I don't know exactly all the circumstances like this. This is like embarrassing almost for, for Paul. He says, for, for which I am suffering, bound with the chains as a criminal. And this word criminal only shows up in a couple other places. And every time it's actually referring to the criminals who are on the either side of Jesus at his crucifixion. I don't know if that's exactly what Paul was thinking when he penned that. But I do think it's interesting that Paul is identifying with what he just encouraged Timothy to identify with in the suffering endurance of Christ. He says, remember Christ. But then he says, remember me 
And I would add, remember those, look for those in your life who suffer well, who endure well. Look for the examples that have gone on before you. Become that example for someone else. And then he does a little bit of a play on words here. For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. This may be one of the best phrases in all of Scripture because of the thought uh, that it conveys and carries the, the weight of this phrase. So we remember Christ in his gospel. We remember Paul in his suffering. But then we remember the word and its power. So he's disgusted with the chains that he's in. And he says, you know what? But even if I'm in chains, the word, the gospel is not bound. They may stop the messenger, he says, but they will not, cannot stop the message. And so this is why when you get to chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, Paul says, above all, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The power is in the word. And the word will always accomplish its purpose. Thank goodness it's not about me. Right now, it's about God's Word. This is why we will always preach the Word, because the power is in the Word, not the messenger. Paul says, I'm about to die, but you know what? God's Word will never die. I'm in chains, but God's Word cannot be bound. What's going to happen if Paul is martyred? What happens if Timothy gets martyred. What happens if every pastor in America gets arrested? It won't, I'm not worried about that. I'm just saying. What happens? If it's kind of not promoting conspiracy theories. What happens if, if all the Christians start to disappear off the face of the earth? God's word will not be bound. His message will continue. The gospel will advance. That's what Paul is saying. The word of God is not bound. We need to remember that the power is in the word. That's why you ought to be teaching your kids the word. That's why you ought to be learning the word. That's why you need to be in the word. Listen to all the great preachers you want. I have a list of ones that I enjoy. Get in the word. Be in the word. God's grace is manifested to you through his word. Only in a preacher and insofar as they teach the word rightly. There's power in the word. You got to keep going. He says, therefore, verse 10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The point of this verse is not to debate or discuss God's elect. However, you could. I think what Paul's actually doing is using God's uh, Old Testament language. This is a phrase, uh, God's people here. And he's, he's saying, I'm enduring everything for those who are gods, either currently or will be gods, for their sake, that they would obtain the salvation. Actually, he says that they also may obtain the salvation. He knows he is saved. He knows that he wants others to experience that same salvation in Christ. So we remember the salvation that is promised. Paul's realizing, listen, all of this stuff has happened to me. Maybe he wouldn't have chose it. 
But he's like, you know what? I endure everything. I'm willing to endure everything. Why? Because he had a single mindset. He was resolute. He was determined to advance the gospel. That was God's call on his life. And he said, I'm going to do it for the sake not only of pleasing my commander, the Lord Jesus, but for the sake of those who still need to hear the gospel. So, Timothy, keep preaching the gospel. Find some guys, gather around, teach them the gospel, and have them continue to teach the gospel again. Paul knew. He was confident. He had a reward waiting. And so he said, I'm, I'm going to surrender myself. I will endure whatever it takes, whatever cost, whatever suffering, ultimately his death, so that God could work in the hearers of the gospel. So we get to our last point. We've had three. If I can remember them. Hopefully you can remember them better. Be strengthened in God's grace. Key number one. Key number two. Stay resolute in God's mission. That was the most of the sermon. And now we just have a little bit of a conclusion here. Trust fully in God's faithfulness. We could spend a lot of time unpacking the last three verses of our passage this morning, but I don't think we need to. Because I think verses 11 and 13 is really a, a recap. It's a, it's a stamp. It's an emphasis of all that verses 1 through 10 was leading up to. And I kind of just hammered a little bit hard on the power of the word because it comes up again right here in a different way. So he says, The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. Now, I don't think that Paul is actually talking about his future death. I think there's a progression through these verses. This is speaking of his conversion, our hopeful conversion. And and we could look, because there's multiple and multiple and multiple examples of this analogy of when we place our faith in Christ, we die to ourselves. This is the picture of baptism, that we are buried with Christ, that we die with Christ for our old self, and that we're raised to walk in new life. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. Although I don't think it's lost on Timothy that this would also apply then to martyrdom as well. And he says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. So now we move from conversion to this current state of endurance, of suffering that isn't pointless, but it's leading to a reward that we know that everything that we are enduring here for his sake will eventually result in our reigning with Christ. Christ is reigning now. We will reign with him, the scriptures tell us. So this is the encouragement to Timothy. He says, keep going, because if you've died with him, we will also live with him. He is the power that's within you. He is our hope and future. If we endure, we will reign with him. And then there's a warning. And I think these next two verses, there's about three different ways to look at this as well, but I think these next two verses are, are a negative warning. He says, if we deny him, speaking of Christ, He also will deny us. That's harsh. Yes, it is. Do you know who said that? Jesus. Matthew 10. 
Don't go there, but you can read it later. Matthew 10. Jesus said, yes, there will be some that deny me. And when they do, I will deny them. Paul's using the same exact language. What does this mean? This means that we are called to endure. This means that there are some who will profess Christ some way, shape, or form, who are not really of us, is how 1 John 2 puts it. They made a profession, but they proved by their departing that they were never really one of us. I think we just looked at Romans 9 and 10 and 11 where you see these things of, yeah, they, there was some Israel but not Israel and there's some who believed and others who don't. Is, is this tension in here? Yeah. So God's elect, God's chosen people hear the wording, warning and say, God forbid, that be about me. And we are encouraged to endure. Because if we deny him, he will also deny us. And he says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. There's a warning and there's an encouragement probably in here as well. And the warning is, if you prove to be faithless, guess what? God's will is not thwarted. God will continue to work. He remains faithful. And it could be speaking of those who just wandered for a while. And, and, and Paul is saying, no, God, no matter what you do, God still remains faithful. I just think the weight of the how it's constructed is saying, yeah, there's some that are, are they're, they're going to prove they have made a shipwreck of their faith. And they've proved that they didn't have faith. Nevertheless, he remains faithful. Despite our failures, his promises remain true. It's a great passage, Romans 3, 3 and 4, uh, speaks to that principle. For he cannot deny himself. We learn in, in this last little bit here. Ultimately, at the end of the day, how will the gospel advance? God's going to do it. He is faithful. He cannot deny himself. His promises are always yes and amen in Christ Jesus. The question is not, will the gospel advance? Because it will. The question for you and me then becomes, will we participate in the advancement of the gospel? That's our privilege as believers, to participate in the advancement of the gospel. This is God's plan and method that he would use us in the advancement of the gospel. Don't be foolish to think that God needs you. We have the privilege of serving as a good soldier, our Savior. The character of God, His sovereignty, always prevails. But the encouragement in here to Timothy was no matter what's going around, what's going on in the world, how bad things get, how desperate it seems, man, run to God's grace. Be strengthened in God's grace. Keep your mind fixed. Be resolute in God's mission or whatever God's specific call is for your life because it's part of the advancement of the gospel. And, and ultimately, trust wholly in God's faithfulness 
know that what he says he will do. And we have the privilege to walk alongside him. I'm going to end with uh, just a brief, there's a commentator, I don't even know how to say his name, J.C. Lansma. He, he summarizes the passage well. We'll end here. Whether we find ourselves lethargic from prosperity, cowered by hardship, or deceived by error, whether the danger is distraction, discouragement, or disqualification, Paul's robust and loving summons to faithfulness in chapter 2, 1 through 13 is needed. A faithfulness that endures for the long haul and all the way to the last breath. If we find it hard being a Christian, we are in good company. But we must not quit. In fellowship with our fellow pilgrims on the way to salvation and eternal glory, in the face of all that opposes and disheartens and entices, always remember that Jesus Christ, a descendant of King David, was raised from the dead. If we live and behave as true disciples of Jesus, we will live and reign with him. He is faithful. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, we're thankful that we serve a risen Savior. That you came and lived among us. That you showed us what it was to endure suffering, knowing the cost. It's described as the joy that was set before you as you think of fulfilling God's eternal plan. Lord, some of this is challenging, challenging for me as I walk through it, challenging for everyone as they consider how focused, how in tune with God's call in my life am I. Lord, help us think through these things. Let us trust in verse 7 that you will work it out in us, that you would convict us where we need convicting, that you would encourage us where we need encouragement. Lord, that we would be able to rest in your grace. That we would be able to trust in your faithfulness. That we would prove to be faithful disciples who want to please you above all else. And we look forward to the day that we will live and reign with you. We thank, we thank you for your faithfulness today. We pray in your name. Amen.